Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent. And I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing Bureau Chief. Xi Jinping wants China's economy to be all about self-reliance rather than chasing growth targets. Food security is a linchpin of Xi's plans. He's called it a guozhidazhe, a national priority, and he's ordered central planners to ensure that China grows more of its own food. But those new plans are in conflict with other signature Xi policies, including pulling farmers out of poverty. And that is causing confusion and resentment. This week, we're asking, why is Xi fixated on food security? And what does that mean for China's countryside? This is Drumtar from The Economist. Alice, it's you. You're back. It's been a while. <laughs> yes. How are you doing? Hello, it's me. <laughs> uh, I'm good. Uh, I was away for a few weeks uh, on holiday, spending some time with family. I, I did faithfully listen to every episode of Drum Tower that was recorded while I was gone. And I do think that Jeremy, Sulin, and Gabriel all did fantastic jobs. But I'm, I'm happy to be back and glad that it's, it's you and me on Drum Tower again. And Alice, not only are you back, but also my old nemesis, the phantom driller of old Beijing, who is <laughs> restoring an apartment somewhere in this building. He's pretty loud. Yeah, I missed him too. <laughs> um, so, David, how have you been doing? I mean, I'm, I'm back in Taiwan just in time for, you know, a typhoon warning. And actually, I've been watching all these very scary videos of intense flooding and rain in Beijing. Are you doing okay? How's everything around you? Central Beijing is a lot better off than the suburbs and actually some cities in the province around us. A lot of people have died. You've had sort of roads and bridges washed away. It's been actually a real reminder about how vulnerable China is to extreme weather. Yeah, that's right. And actually, food security is part of that, right? And that's exactly what you've been looking into in your recent reporting. That's right. I took myself to the countryside because there has been so much emphasis, including right from the top with Xi Jinping, on growing more basic staples, you know, rice or wheat or corn. And I wanted to see how that fits in with the policy that has been so important for decades now of trying to help China's farmers get richer by choosing what they grow and maybe finding crops that really raise their revenues, you know, cash crops. And how is that conflict between revenues and food security playing out on the ground? Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, this emphasis on food security and self-reliance is very much part of something we've talked about a few times on Drum Tower before, right? The idea that Xi Jinping emphasizes security above all else, and he really wants to build an economy of national greatness and national self-reliance and to be prepared for any kinds of crises that might happen. Relying on China being able to grow most of its own food is a major part of that. 
And David, you went to Sichuan. How did you pick the location that you went to specifically? Alice, obviously Sichuan is one of China's most populous, important provinces, but it's also known for really fertile farmland. And last year, uh, Xi Jinping went to a county near the capital of Sichuan, Chengdu. He went to Meishan County because that has since time immemorial been seen as this incredibly important farming area. Yeah, I gotta say, I am jealous that he went to Sichuan. That was always one of my favorite places to go on reporting trips, if only because it has the best food in China, in my opinion. And I would go to Sichuan just so I could eat liangmian in the morning every day. So I'm very jealous. But anyway, David, when you got to Meishan, you know, this place that Xi Jinping also enjoys visiting, did you see any evidence that people there still remembered his visits? We see Xi Jinping's favorite slogans on you know bridges and roadsides and village walls all over China. But this county in the middle of the grain-growing area of Sichuan is just a exhibition of Xi Jinping quotes. Let me send you some pictures I took Ooh. from a couple of villages where I was doing interviews, and you'll see what I mean, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, Alice, here is village slogan number one. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay, I see. It is a slogan on the side of a house, and it says, So basically, food security is It is a national priority. It is a big deal for the state. That's right. And actually, our colleague James Mars wrote a really revealing piece about how important that phrase is. Yeah, actually, it was really funny, James's piece, because he was saying, it's like this phrase that Xi Jinping likes to use quite a lot, but it, he uses it to refer to all kinds of different priorities, and it's phrased in this classical Chinese way so that he sounds very scholarly, but it isn't a classical phrase, and it's just part of his puffed-up way of speaking. I love that uh, line of James's. It'd be like a Western politician suddenly dropping a bit of Latin into a speech. <laughs> yeah. Just to, just to show that you're an educated and respectable person. So food security is a huge priority right now. It's Guozhidaja, as we just saw. But is China actually food insecure? So China has become less self-reliant as a kind of absolute marker in the last few years. It is the world's biggest food importer and it's importing more. But you are also seeing China building just enormous stockpiles, many months, in some cases, more than a year's worth of staples like wheat, corn and rice. And it is hard not to wonder if there is a link with that Xi Jinping overarching message that we live in dangerous times. So if you're looking at the war in Ukraine and how that has disrupted grain supplies and tensions with the United States, which sells an absolutely enormous amount of things like soybeans Mm -hmm. to China. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is if this was a peaceful and safe world for the Chinese state, you wouldn't necessarily say that they are food insecure. But if you are Xi Jinping and you're looking at this hostile environment, thinking about the stormy seas and the potential for war, for some kind of conflict, you feel that, you know, any amount of dependency on imports is is not secure. So you need to reach a a higher level of self-sufficiency. But it's, of course, as you know, Alice, Every Chinese ruler, going back to imperial times, has had to worry about hunger because China is a country that has been stalked and haunted by famine throughout its history. And Mm. today it tries to feed about a fifth of humanity with only 9% of the world's farmland and 7% of the world's fresh water. So China starts from a fairly insecure starting point. You add that to global tensions and you can see why someone like Xi Jinping, his security focus contains a food element. 
making sure your people are not hungry was one of the basic ways that any Chinese ruler established his legitimacy. And I always think of this Chinese saying, um, it's also one of these classic sayings, but nowadays you see it a lot at restaurants, I guess because it, it's, a, it's a good restaurant slogan, but it's 民以食为天, right? For people, food is everything. Food is like the heavens. It's the basic thing. And if you're an emperor who can't supply food, you'll worry about whether you can last. And there's this strange dissonance if you live in modern China, in the giant city of Chengdu, you are surrounded by, you know, some of China's best restaurants, shopping malls and food courts and a sense of plenty and affluence. People enjoying a China that has never been so prosperous and well-fed. You go out into the villages a couple of hours down the road and you see these really retro posters. Let me send you another one. Uh, which was in a village that I visited, which it looks like something straight out of the 1960s in terms of its kind of slightly doomy message and sort of retro design. Okay, I got it. I got it. So that's uh, slogan number two. It says, 坚守耕地红线, So again, you know, ensure food security, but also resolutely defend the red line of arable land or of farming land. And there's the retro old farmer with his straw hat and his arms full of a sheaf of wheat oh, right. and a buffalo to plow yeah. the field. It's a very kind of old-fashioned story, right? And that idea of a red line, which is, as you know, Alice, is applied by the Communist Party to all kinds of things that must be defended at all costs, is absolutely being used at the moment for this idea that China has a minimum stock of arable land and that governments must not let it drop down below that quota. Yeah, so I mean, despite all the abundance you saw in Chengdu, and I'm sure you see in Beijing all the time, it's clear that China's leadership has this sense of urgency. It's like, we need to defend the line and make sure we have enough. And in fact, Xi Jinping was just back in Sichuan in late July, setting out his priorities for rural China once again. I was reading a report on the speeches he gave while he was there, and at one point he says, Sichuan needs to put rural revitalization in a prominent position and take on the responsibilities of stabilizing the production and ensuring the supply of major agricultural products, such as grain, hogs, and oilseed crops. And if you listen carefully to that list, there are in fact at least three different top priorities in there. And I think arguably, they clash. Huh. Yeah. I mean, so in that list, there is rural revitalization, First of all, he says, put it in a prominent position. And rural revitalization is this code for raising farmers' incomes. It's this idea of after this big campaign they had for poverty alleviation, now, you know, we do rural revitalization, which means officials go to villages and they say, now everybody here is going to do some kind of money-making project. Like, we're all going to plant walnut trees or we're all going to raise frogs or we're all going to plant chili peppers. And this is going to make you rich. So it's an idea of helping farmers to raise their incomes. And then if we look at the other two top priorities kind of tucked away in that list, you see stabilizing production and ensuring that the most important agricultural products are the focus of all efforts. Yeah. So, I mean, those all sound like fairly reasonable rural goals. David, you mentioned that, you know, there are these three different priorities and they clash with each other. Why, why do they clash? Well, if you're saying that with a given piece of land, farmers should grow the thing that is going to make them the most money, even if it's some sort of exotic cash crop. But all good land must be used for the basic staples that keep China fed and safe. 
that's a clash mm -hmm. because growing rice and corn and wheat just doesn't make very much money. They're just kind of staple grain crops. They don't make nearly as much money as, say, you know, growing fancy fruit or walnuts. Mm -hmm. And there's also a clash between kind of overall rural revitalization, which you'll remember, Alice, often involves encouraging little factories to open in a village to try and create more jobs and allow people to stay mm -hmm. in the countryside and make more money. But if an official builds a factory on farmland, then that is against Xi Jinping's orders. Uh, farmland must be kept for agriculture. It cannot be used for non-farm purposes. And we've seen Chinese officials explaining that there's a kind of sacred duty to make sure that farmland is used for cultivation, which is as important as protecting giant pandas. And China's officials do not mess around with their panda references. <laughs> they go into real detail that Xi Jinping wants to see you know, the best arable land used for grain. If you're going to grow fruit trees to make money, that's fine, but make it on the steeper slopes where you maybe can't grow rice or corn and make sure that you're using kind of hybrid seeds and industrial farming and mechanization. It's a whole vision where food security and trying to make people in the countryside rich are both being pursued at the same time. Yeah. So when you say raise the farmer's income, but also make them grow these cash crops, and also we're going to control where you can do it and where you can't, you sometimes you might just end up with, with a lot of confusion. And develop villages in the countryside, but not if it means building on land that should be used for grain. <laughs> yeah, more confusion. So, David, I mean, has there been any discussion about the clash between these different priorities? There has been a ton of discussion online. And actually, as so often with Chinese social media, you see people kind of joining all of the dots into this almost like a conspiracy theory. There are people who say that if you take all of these competing priorities and policies, actually something like a kind of a Mao era campaign is underway. All previous talk about worrying about the environment is now being sacrificed to this 1960s style uh, grain growing campaign. Oh, I mean, is there any evidence of that? So you're seeing netizens and Chinese bloggers actually putting together videos of things that people have taken on their smartphones. Here's a compilation that was doing the rounds. This is so bizarre. I mean, so there are these little clips of farm fields filled with crops that are being run over. And then there's this clip from a bamboo forest and a woman is saying, I've worked so hard for three years to grow this bamboo and now it's all being, you know, chopped down. There's also a clip of a field with a bunch of sticks in rows with little rocks on top. And there's a man saying, what is this for? <laughs> I have to say, I, I have no idea what, what that is for. I mean, David, what, what is happening here? So what you're seeing is a bunch of more valuable crops being either plowed under or cut down or taken out with a focus on basic staples. And online, people are talking about a previous campaign that was designed to increase the forest cover. That idea of Tuigang uh, Huanlin, you replace grains with woods and forests. And now people are reversing that and saying that actually there's now this national policy of Tuilin Huanggang to return forests to farmland. People online also, I can see that, you know, as they're posting these videos and having these discussions, they're making claims like this is a return to the Mao era. I mean, what do you think of that claim, David? Is it, is it a bit much? The situation on the ground is more complicated than a single national policy of deforestation. But I think you can see it's really revealing that central government leaders are worried about this backlash. And in June, 
you saw the Ministry of National Resources actually issuing a directive banning local officials from some of these things that are being filmed by angry citizens. So they're saying, don't start planting crops on really steep slopes that might just wash away. Don't use ecologically fragile land for corn terraces. Don't use one-size-fits-all measures like bulldozing fruit orchards or filling in fish ponds just because, as a local official, you're panicking about that you don't have enough farmland. Uh-huh. Okay. This is a very classic Chinese way of finding out what's happening. You know, when you see a government directive saying, hey, stop doing this, that is evidence that those things are happening and, and perhaps that local government officials were being over-enthusiastic and trying to meet vague goals stipulated by slogans coming from the very top. I mean, all of this just sounds very messy, and it also reminds me of the episode we did a few months ago on Nongguan, on the rural law enforcers. Um, And when we did that episode, I just remember we also had been looking at these videos online of something happening in the countryside, and once you actually went to the place where it was happening, it became much clearer what was really going on. Is that how it was on this reporting trip as well? That's exactly what I wanted to find out. But before we hear about how those policy clashes are playing out on the ground, for our listeners, you can read much more about China online, including a piece in our sister publication, 1843, about why the Atheist Communist Party wants to pick the next reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. You will need to be a subscriber to read it. And if you're not, then why not try our free 30-day digital subscription? You'll find more details at economist.com slash drum offer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Alice, I was touring from village to village in this really beautiful bit of countryside, uh, a few hours outside Chengdu, these roller coaster roads that go down into a dip and up this steep hill and every patch of land planted with every crop you could imagine. And one of the groups of people that I talked to was some old farmers in a barn. And I recorded uh, a sound of what they were up to. Can you guess what this is? Um... It's like a clicking sound. Are they peeling something? This is a family harvesting their most valuable crop. And you have to imagine like two older women and an old man sitting in a barn with these thorny branches. And that clip, clip, clip is these red-handled secateurs clipping the crop off the branches. Hmm. Okay. Their most valuable crop? Uh... That's pretty important to Sichuan as well. Let me send you a picture. Okay. See if you can guess it. If you are a fan of Sichuan food, this is a pretty integral ingredient. So there's a photo of the clip-clip-clipping going on. Ooh. What are they collecting on that white sheet? Is it Sichuan pepper? It is. So if you like your (laughs) mala and Mm. uh, you like that numbing Sichuan pepper in addition to the chilies, this was actually my first time seeing it being clipped off 
Looks a lot like a rose bush, actually. Pretty thorny. Yeah, I never knew how it looked um, like before it arrives on your table. <laughs> it was pretty cool. And this was such a beautiful village. You know, as you went up and down these roads, you had beehives and little corn crops and tea bushes and orange trees, because this bit of Sichuan is also really known for its citrus fruit and Sichuan peppers. It was just this kind of sense of extreme abundance. But actually, the truth is, this isn't a very rich bit of the world. It's too high and mountainous. And these villages don't have a lot of water. So I wanted to ask these villagers whether they were affected by these constant swings and roundabouts in policy. Yeah, tell me, you know, who did you meet? And did they tell you that they were being forced to you know, change what they were growing or losing their crops because people were mowing them down or anything like what we saw online? So in village after village, people are absolutely aware that food security and growing grain is the top priority. And if they forget it for a minute, there are giant slogans separate metal characters on stilts planted across their own fields to remind them. But of course, as you remember, Alice, from the countryside, everyone is trying to make a living and they've got four or five different businesses at once. So this is one of the key businesses of the Yue family. Oh, wow. Okay. A lot of chicks. So Alice, yes, that is a barn full of a very large number of baby chicks, which are being raised until they're four months old and then sold on. And that is a big income source for the Yue family, and they are a big family. And you can tell that by the number of tricycles and children's bikes in the farmyard. And Mrs. Yue, the mother, uh, said that she understood that the party is now very focused on food security and more than in the past. Wow, so you can hear that Mrs. Yue is quite clear. It's not only that the party is concerned about food security, but she says, you know, yeah, of course, we're, we're all more concerned with the problem of food security. And when you ask her, why do you think Chinese people are worried about this? She says, because nowadays we all buy food to eat. We're not growing our own food. And also, what if we can't afford it in the future? So what if prices go up? And there's this idea that, you know, if you can't afford it and you can't buy your food and you have nothing to eat, people can't accept that. It's really interesting, isn't it, that farmers on the ground, they're very in line with Xi Jinping's message about we need to grow our own because it's dangerous to rely on the market. It does remind me, though, of during COVID lockdowns. I remember spending a lot of time in rural China and talking to, say, you know, migrant workers. And it was, you know, people who couldn't work in the cities anymore. But, you know, they would say, well, at least we can go home. At least we have a patch of land. And there's this kind of psychological security to the idea that worst comes to worst, you can grow your own food and you won't go hungry. And I, I do think that is really important for Chinese people. It's like not just about not trusting the market, but wanting to know, like, we will grow something even if we can't buy anything. You're right, Alice. But obviously, people have to make enough money that they can live. And farming is often only one of their businesses. And that was really obvious in the village of Gaucha. Now, I reached that by driving over a range of hills into this big, wide, flat valley. And the whole of the valley floor is planted with bright green rice. And that is good for feeding China. But it's not actually a very valuable crop for individual farmers. Mm. When I started talking to farmers in the village, including this man, Mr. Luo, it turned out that that one patch of land represents the story of Chinese agriculture and how often policies have changed over the last several decades. Huh, so I can hear Mr. Luo saying that they've been growing ganju citrus for three to four years. 
but that his family has always lived there. This is a really good place for growing things like oranges. And in fact, the village party committee has this sign for the whole village with a logo, which is two orange trees groaning with fruit. The best land was being given over recently, as Mr. Lawless is explaining, to growing citrus trees. But actually, when you step back and hear the story of their little patch of land in this village, it's been through multiple different mm. crops. So when he was a kid, it was rice. But obviously, that does make a ton of money. So about 15 years ago, they decided to parcel all the little tiny village plots of land together and rent them out to one agribusiness. And they had smart ideas about growing watermelons. And then that didn't quite work out, so they were going to grow grapes. And when that didn't make enough money, they gave all the little plots back to the villagers a few years ago, and they started growing citrus trees. And they could get hundreds of citrus trees even on their own little patch of land, and they could make some pretty good money. Yeah, and that's good if your goal is rural revitalization or raising farmers' incomes. But you said that now these fields are all rice. So what happened to those trees? Did they get cut down? Yeah, last year they came in and they pulled them all up. Oh. And now he only just has a very few trees. And that makes a massive difference to how much money he can make. He gets compensation from the government for giving his land up for growing rice. But it's maybe a seventh or an eighth mm. or even less of the money he could make from growing oranges. Wow, and I'm really curious. I mean, how did Mr. Law feel about that? As so often with Chinese farmers, he was pretty fatalistic about it. Oh, you ask him how he's feeling and he's just like, I, I don't really feel anything. Anyway, if the nation asks us to grow rice, we grow rice. If they tell us to grow something else, we grow something else. And no feelings, we just do what they tell us to do. And that sort of fatalism seemed to permeate everyone I spoke to. It was funny, some villagers were saying things like there were neighbours who resisted having their trees cut down. But then someone said, well, hang on, you're a Communist Party member. You better lead the way and let them take your trees out. So there was, you know, little hints of people being dissatisfied. But basically, certainly when talking to a foreign reporter, once the state has made its mind up, that's that. And it isn't the wholesale Maoist campaign of deforestation that some people were talking about on the Chinese internet. But it is true that once again, a new policy has kind of arrived in the village and completely reversed what was happening only a few years before. And you realize that for people in these rural communities, government policies changing, you just have to live with it like the weather. Yeah, it's like, what's the use of resisting it? They're not going to roll it back just because you didn't like it. It's fascinating when the local conditions are clashing directly with party propaganda. So one village that I went to right up in the top of the hills had been in the state media about a decade ago, because an official was explaining how if they stopped growing grain, which didn't make much money, and they planted mulberry trees, then the mulberry leaves could be fed to silkworms, and everyone would get rich, and it'd be fantastic. So I went to that village, mm. no mulberry trees. Oh. <laughs> I did meet a friendly guy, uh, Mr. Jung. Uh, it was a hot day. He was shirtless. He has a tattoo. He had a little kid playing on a tricycle behind him. And he was like, yeah, no, the mulberry trees, they didn't make any money, so they're all gone. And I said, well, so in your village, have you had fruit trees cut down? He says, well, we're too far from the main road for growing grain. But he suddenly mentions, I do have another job, driving a digger. And last year, I was hired to go and take my digger to another village and remove a bunch of trees to make oh. way for farmland. <laughs> so he, he was the you know, implementer of, you know, of the policy for his neighbours. And I asked him, you know, how were the farmers when you rocked up with your digger and started pulling their trees out? 
So you are asking this guy, you know, when you showed up to dig up these farmers' crops, I mean, were they happy? Were they angry with you? He kind of laughs. He's like, oh, of course, they were man-yi, like they were, they were fine with it. After all, the government gave its orders, so what is there to be unhappy with? And I think all of these stories, you know, grow orange trees, don't grow orange trees, grow mulberries and get rich with silkworms, then no, 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 stop and do something else. They all show the problem with central planning. It's not that central planners make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But it's when a Chinese official, their policy goes awry or has unintended consequences, the response from the center is often to lay another policy on top, but to keep all the policies running at the same time in this kind of giant policy kludge. Wait, sorry, David, what is a kludge? You know, it's a kludge. A kludge like a... It's, a... it's a bunch of stuff all at the same time in a kind of big old heap. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's what it sounds like. It's like things mushed together. So, David, we've been talking about this rural policy kludge, as you put it, and considering how confusing it is. But at the same time, there is a logic to some parts of it, isn't there? I mean, if everyone gets to just grow whatever they want and you have all these farmers with small plots of land growing their Sichuan peppers or orange trees and there's not that much land available for farming, I mean, what if there really isn't enough of the staple foods that China needs? Yeah, look, a lot of Communist Party planning is based on logic and rationality. All of these priorities sometimes contradict one another. What's confusing on the ground is when they're kind of running in different directions. So China really does have a lot of people to feed in a country with not much good arable land. And so plenty of stuff that they're focused on, like trying to have higher quality hybrid seeds. Maybe it's dangerous for China to have to import so many of its advanced seeds. Maybe it is better to have bigger fields so you can use mechanization to get much more grain out of each hectare. All of that is completely sensible. It's also totally reasonable to worry about local governments building on the little bit of farmland that they do have. It's just that that is intention with that plan to make the countryside richer by letting farmers choose what they grow. Right. And when you look at the way that the top leadership, Xi Jinping, talks about food security, you can see that he really has a sense of urgency around this. Although he has been talking about food security since 2013, you know, right after he came into power, there was a speech that he gave 10 years ago where he said, the rice bowls of the Chinese people must be firmly in our own hands. Our rice bowls should be filled mainly by Chinese crops. And that was 10 years ago before we were in this current moment of extreme you know, global tension and potential conflict. But all the way back then, Xi Jinping was already talking about how food security really matters for national security because if the people are hungry and the people's most basic needs are not met, then they become vulnerable to foreign influences. And so if you're a faithful reader of Xi Jinping's speeches, you would see this as far back as 10 years ago. Although the irony, of course, is that one of the reasons that Chinese self-sufficiency in food has actually dropped from 100% 20 years ago to 77% now is just that Chinese diets are so much richer and they're eating kind of more meat and all of that involves more imports. So there is this tension between Xi Jinping's kind of fortress China instincts and the fact that actually one of the reasons that China is importing more food is just because it's an increasingly prosperous country going out onto global markets and buying good stuff to eat. Yeah, it's like a victim of its own success. 
This also reflects something about Xi Jinping's mentality, right? I mean, 77% still sounds quite high. That dependence on imports looks scary if you're sitting in Beijing. Yeah, and I think we're entitled to wonder how much of this is bound up with the Chinese tensions with the United States. You remember in the Trump administration how Donald Trump was making these massive demands for China to buy much more American soybeans and food if they wanted to have a good relationship with him. And even the Biden administration now calls these huge food sales to China a precious, valuable anchor for the relationship. But it's easy to get the impression that to Xi Jinping, that's a vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on how you see interdependence, right? Is it something that helps to keep the world peaceful and to disincentivize conflict? Or is it something that your potential enemy can use against you? And it seems like for Xi Jinping, it's, it's usually seen as the latter. And even that Black Sea grain deal, under which Russia basically promised not to sink Ukrainian ships as long as they were carrying food to the rest of the world, actually, the fact that that's now suspended really affects China. China was a big buyer, almost a quarter of the grain under that deal was going to Chinese warehouses. And speaking of those warehouses and China's stockpiling of grain and corn, I'm sitting here in Taiwan, and one thing that concerns me a lot is how analysts are trying to figure out how much food China is stockpiling because they read it as a potential indicator of whether China is preparing for war. That's actually something that our colleague Rosie Blau wrote about recently, although to be clear, her conclusion was that China is not preparing for war right now. But it is one of those indicators to watch. So there's a real geopolitical element to all of this thinking about food security and where China gets its grain from. I think a really fascinating contrast with places like America or Europe is that in rich countries, farmers have incredible political power in their own hands. You know, if they're unhappy, they can make life very miserable for a government. As you remember, Alice, you go to villagers and you ask them in China, if you're unhappy with the latest change of policy, does that change how you think of the government? And they don't even really understand what you mean. They are the least powerful people politically, I think, in Chinese society. Yeah, and you know, that is so ironic because, you know, earlier we mentioned this classic Chinese saying, Min yi shi wei tian, right? So to the people, the food are the heavens. And actually, the first line of that saying is, Wang zhe yi min wei tian. The first line is that the emperor should take the people as the heavens. But that's not what we're seeing happen here. Thank you for listening to Drumtar, and we'll be back next week. And thank you to everyone who's written to us, especially those who say where you are in the world. A special shout out to Pavel, who was painting his apartment in Krakow while listening to the episode on patriotic education. And also to Janis, who was on his bike cycling around Lake Zurich while listening to the same episode. If you have not listened to that episode, you will find it wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you would like to write to us, our email address is drum at economist.com. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram produced this episode. Sound design is by Carla Patella, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell.